what the heck Grace Cannon means, so I will explain the, the pun, Grace. the terrible pun. It is terrible. I know. It's so bad. I love it. it so, the canon is what we call the collected works in the Bible, right? It's the, the whole group of sacred books is called the canon. C-A-N-N-O-N. -N -N. I, I forget which one is which. Anyway, a canon is also a canon, right? So, we're going to talk about how God's grace shows up in the different books of the Bible. The canon. So, the grace... Canon. I really wanted the logo to be all the apostles and prophets like crammed in like, one of those circus cannons. I didn't get that. Tori, maybe next time. This is a compromise that, that we got with the rest of the staff, so whatever. I'm happy with it. <clears throat> Today I'm going to talk about how God's grace comes through, uniquely maybe, in the Gospel of John. Let me say a few things by way of further introduction. First of all, when we talk about grace, a really short definition of grace is unmerited favor. It's stuff you, it's God showing favor to you that you couldn't earn and don't deserve. But it's more than just God feeling warm, fuzzy feelings for Sue or for David or for me. Because warm, fuzzy feelings are great, I guess, but they don't really do anything. So God shows his grace. He shows his favor towards us in specific, concrete ways. Okay? And it's kind of hard to nail down and it's hard to define because it happens in so many different ways so often. Uh, years ago when I was studying grace, I know this is a long intro, but it's good. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen tonight. I may preach something a little different. I might scroll through my slides just to show you guys I did the hard work and then totally derail. I don't know. But I thought of this analogy for grace years ago as I was studying it. I thought if you were like in World War One, I, I think I was reading about World War One, and you were in a trench, right? And let's say that you had no gun, and even if you had a gun, you had no bullets, and you were incredibly discouraged, and you did not know what to do, and you were cold. And all of a sudden, you get a note of encouragement, someone gives you a gun, somebody gives you bullets for the gun, somebody shows you how to use the gun, and then somebody gives you orders on what to do, and a coat. The encouraging note, the equipment, the lesson to, to use the equipment, the bullets to go with the equipment, the directions on how to proceed with the equipment you now know how to use, and the coat to keep you warm, would all represent grace. All of it. So grace is a multifaceted thing. How God shows his favor towards us. We're going to look at this in John. And my fear is that if you're new, you might need a bunch more information than I can give tonight. Talk to me afterwards. I love that kind of thing. But if you've been in church your whole life like I have, if your mom made you go Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, and sometimes to revival Thursday and Friday, this might, you might have heard this so much you can't hear it anymore. Does that make sense? So I want us to really hear this new again tonight if we've been in church for a long time. The first way God shows his grace in the Gospel of John is that God comes to earth. If that doesn't sound astounding, it's probably because we've heard it too many times. But check this out. This is the famous beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The Word, somebody say Word. Word. Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. Whose glory? The Word's glory. The Word that became flesh. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. That's John 1, 1 to 3, 10 and 14. Here's the incredible thing. Not just any abstract idea of God came to earth. And how do we know it's God? Has John made it clear enough that it's God? I think so. When people want to argue about whether or not Jesus was actually God, it just drives me crazy. If I told you guys that in 1981 was Tony, and Tony was with Anthony, and Tony was Anthony, whether he was capitalized or not, I see those typos, <laughs> and nothing has been done by Anthony that wasn't done by Tony, P.S., my family calls me Tony, what have I just said? Anthony and Tony are the same person, right? Like, you can't really dodge that. John is a very poetic writer, but he's trying in all the ways he can without just coming out and saying it. He's like, Jesus is God, but Jesus just isn't any God. N.T. Wright, who's a pretty smart dude, points this out in his book, How God Became King. John is inviting us into the reality that however weird it might seem, Jesus is Israel's God, Yahweh, finally coming back. Now we need an Old Testament history lesson really quick. The whole first three quarters of your Bible that most people don't really like to read as much as I do, I don't think. Old Testament people? You got any OT people in here? Like, alright, all six of us. I like all you people. So, God makes a promise. He makes a covenant with his people. And he's like, don't break my covenant. And they keep breaking it. And after hundreds of years, he's finally like, look, if you keep disrespecting me, if you keep running away, if you keep worshiping other gods, if you keep spitting in my face, I'm going to do what you want. I'm going to pull back. You're going to lose this country. You're going to be taken over. You're going to go into exile. And, and, and you'll have really, well, you'll have broken it. You'll really have broken it then, and you'll not be happy. They do that. And for about 500 years, there's this sense that God is somehow absent from his people. But there are these hints in the Old Testament that God is going to come back. That God will not leave them forever. John is saying, not so much that Jesus is God. He's saying, Jesus is Yahweh coming back to his people at last. Hmm. Yahweh is Jesus. Now, that might be a little tweak in our way of thinking, but it's huge. Because if we think to ourselves, how could a man be God? We come up with all kinds of weird problems. But if we think, whoa, what if Yahweh, God Almighty, the God of Israel, actually chose to come back as a person? So I can wrap my mind around that. I can wrap my mind around the fact that a God who is everywhere could be right here. You know what I mean? So this is the amazing truth of God, John's Gospel. Not some God, not our abstract idea of God, but Israel's God, Yahweh, has come back to rescue his people. They were worth coming back for. You guys are worth coming back for. He finally came back to do something specific. Yahweh has come back to his people. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Next, I'm going to talk about what that might mean. The Word, the Logos. There were some ideas about what the Logos, the word, was in Greek thought at the time. But M.T. Wright, smart dude, he studied a few more years than I have, a lot more. He's got a few more letters after his name. He says, you know what? John's probably not talking about the Greek idea of the word. He's probably talking about God's word as God talked about it way back in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 55, it says this. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, 
without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word, word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to be empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I think there's a parallel between the chapters, really the end of Isaiah chapter 52, all the way to the first half of Isaiah 56. If you haven't read it, you should read it. All in one shot. It's all one glorious chunk of scripture where God talks about coming back, redeeming his people. The word has come to do something specific and it won't go back to the Father without doing what it was meant to do. Who's the word? Jesus. Jesus. I think John is doing this on purpose. So God comes to earth, not just God, but Yahweh, finally returning to his people. He's coming back for them to achieve a purpose. The purpose for which he's been sent by the Father. And that purpose is to sacrifice himself. This is the second way that God really shows his grace, his favor towards us in the book of John. It's not just that he finally comes back for us. It's that he comes back not to have a party or some autograph signing ceremony. He's coming back as a sacrifice. John chapter 1. John the Baptist. He sees Jesus and he says this. The next day John saw Jesus and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he says, hey, this is who I've been talking about this whole time. I've been baptizing and making this big show in the wilderness for this guy. The next day, Jesus walks by him again. And the next day again, when he saw Jesus passing by, John the Baptist cries out, look. In fact, everybody turn away from me, the guy that you think you came out to see. Look over there. It's the Lamb of God. This is not a glorious thing in itself. Because when he says the Lamb of God, he's talking about a sacrificial lamb. Has anybody ever seen an animal slaughtered? Besides me. Okay, I worked at a sheep farm for a day. I was just scarred by what this looks like. So these people came and they bought a sheep. So the owner of the sheep farm had to go in the sheep pen and they ran away from him because he knew he was there to pick one out, right? But the people had bought the sheep they wanted, they pointed him out, and he tackled the sheep and tied it up. And the minute he tied it up, just like this, the sheep stops fighting because he knows it's dead. Right? They drug it out of the sheep pen, and the people that bought it cut its throat right there in front of me. Dude, I have not been the same since that moment. I'm here to tell you, that was a real life change moment for me. I thought, I hope that never happens to any person ever again, so long as this world is turning. I don't even want to see it done to an animal. But when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he yells at him and says, look, the Lamb of God, it's like him saying, there's the person that's going to get his throat cut for you. That's the guy. How would you like him to point at you and say that? I would duck and run. I'd be living in a cave for the rest of my life. I would never want that to happen to me. But Yahweh has come back to earth for his people for this purpose. Here's a weird verse in John. Who's heard this and been freaked out by it? Jesus is talking to the Jews in John 6. He says, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here, meaning himself, 
is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, excuse me, which I will give for the life of the world. He's talking about how he came as a sacrifice. What happens to a loaf of bread when you give it to a bunch of hungry people? It's ripped apart and it's devoured. So he's saying, hey, I'm the, I'm the bread. I'm going to be ripped apart for you. And it's not for no reason. I want you to take part in this. Somehow take part in what I'm about to have done for you. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be gross. I'm a sacrificial lamb. All right? I'm going to be ripped apart like bread. But you have to take part in that. If you want to live, you have to take part in that. And for a long time, I didn't understand where this symbolism came from. But I think this is straight out of the Old Testament in the same chunk of Isaiah. Remember, John said, this is my, or Isaiah said, this is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The purpose is to be a sacrifice. This absolutely refers to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. I know I'm jumping around. You just have to read it. Listen to me, guys. The very end of Isaiah 52, all the way through the first half of Isaiah 56. Write it down. Go home. Read it. It is beautiful. John is telling his Jewish audience, think back to this passage. Don't you remember that the word was coming for a purpose, and that purpose was to be the suffering servant? I'm not just saying this because N.T. Wright says it. I'm saying it because John invites us to see it. In John 12, John quotes Isaiah. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fill, what the, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant chapter. Lord. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. He's saying that Isaiah didn't just have a glimpse of something abstract when he wrote these passages. He had Jesus in mind. And now John has Isaiah in mind when he writes about Jesus. This is out of Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, this suffering servant. God has poured out all of our wrongdoing on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Behold, the Lamb of God. And as a sheep before his shearers is, is silent, so he did not open his mouth. John is painting a picture of the amazing grace of God demonstrated in the fact that when Yahweh finally returns to his people, he does so to be a sacrifice. Isaiah 55 talks about the result. My word will not return to be empty. Jesus will not show up for no reason. He will not suffer for no reason. He will accomplish the purpose that I set him to accomplish. Here it is in Isaiah 55. Isaiah writes it out. He says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not, what's that word? Bread. Bread. Hmm. And your labor on what does not satisfy. 
What kind of bread is he talking about that we should buy if we're supposed to buy bread that's not really bread? The bread of life, Jesus himself. Isaiah has Jesus in mind. Listen, listen to me, Isaiah says, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. That means the best food there is. His audience must have been so dang confused. <laughs> like, how are we going to buy something with no money? And how are we supposed to buy bread that isn't bread? And then how is it supposed to satisfy us if it's not bread and we can't actually eat it? What is going on? Fast forward to the Gospel of John. And Jesus says, this is the bread of life. You've read Isaiah. Let me clear it up for you. It's me. <coughs> Yahweh comes back to his people with the purpose of sacrificing himself. And I just gave away the next part, the next way that God is going to show his amazing favor towards us in John. He sacrifices himself to accomplish a purpose so that we can escape being condemned. What is a good working definition of being condemned? Anybody? Big trouble. Big trouble. That's good. If you're condemned, you're going to die. So escaping condemnation is equivalent to living. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but have eternal life. If we read the next few verses, we get a more full picture of what's going on, and we mm. preached on this recently. John 3.17 continues, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not the purpose for which the word came. But to save the world through him, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Yahweh came back to his people. He didn't come back to sacrifice himself because there were no stakes. He didn't come back to sacrifice himself because he just felt like it. Because it would be some sort of good moral example to die for no reason. That's not a good moral example. That's crazy. I heard a theologian say, if I save you from drowning and I accidentally drown myself, I'm noble. But if we're walking down a pier and I just jump into the water and I flail around saying, see how much I love you and then I die, that's dumb. <laughs> Sorry to make light of it. Jesus came to save us from a very real wrath that really exists and a very real condemnation that hangs like a storm cloud over all of humanity. The purpose he came for was not to make sure that we get punished, but to help us by any means necessary to escape that. John the Baptist says in John 3.36 that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's pretty good. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Yahweh comes back to his people to sacrifice himself because the stakes are high. The stakes are still high. Does that make sense? God did not die for no reason. You know, I'm bothered. I, I, I'll go off on an aside. You can pay attention again. This is a rabbit trail. We'll be good. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. Somebody was like, hey, explain to me why the Old Testament is so harsh and the New Testament isn't harsh. That was basically their question. And I said, you know, I thought about that and I realized that it's exactly the opposite. In the Old Testament, you have God executing judgment on people and it looks like death a lot of times. You know? I mean, you even have good guys who are doing stuff, and you think, man, that is harsh. You know, you just killed all those people? How could you do that? But then God's judgment is done. 
And in Romans, Paul actually says, hey, God has passed over, like, capital J judgment in his divine forbearance until later. Mm. In the New Testament, if you don't accept Jesus, Yahweh has returned to his people and died for us. If you reject that, the stakes are so exponentially higher in the New Testament than the Old Testament, it is freaky if you read about it. There's talk about punishment and judgment after death. That's either so rare or absent in the Old Testament, I can't think of a single example. In the Old Testament, somebody locked your head off and it was done. In the New Testament, it's like, it will never be done. You will be in a place that is the equivalent of being in a burning fire forever. Because the stakes are higher. Why? Because Yahweh himself came back to get you. And he came like a slaughtered lamb. He had his throat cut for you, in a sense. Crucifixion was probably worse. So that you would be alive. And rejecting that is so much more serious than anything else that we could have possibly done. That was a heavy rabbit trail, wasn't it? But I have to say it, because that's the truth. Mm. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Mm. If you don't hear the bad news, you can't appreciate the good news. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will, will have mercy on them. Hmm. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. It is not hard to get in with Jesus. He will freely pardon and freely show mercy. Okay, there's one more way. Yahweh comes to earth, he comes back to his people, he comes as a sacrifice, which is amazing. He comes as a sacrifice because the stakes are high, and he wants all of us, somebody say all, Aww. all, to escape condemnation. There is a very real wrath that God feels. He's sitting in heaven, he's feeling this wrath towards sin, towards the world, and he's like, man, I don't want anybody to be on the receiving end of all this wrath. I'll take it myself. We have no excuse to suffer God's wrath. He's taken all of our excuses. If we wanted God's wrath, we don't have an excuse to get it. He's taken it all away through Jesus. He wants us to escape condemnation, but even better, he wants us to be united with himself. Hmm. John the Baptist, the beginning of John, this is the last one, and I'll go quickly. When he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, he says something else really cool about him. It's underlined there at the bottom in John 1.34. This is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So baptizing is dunking somebody in something, right? John is saying, first, it's freaky. He's like, this is the Lamb of God. This is the one who's going to suffer and die for you. But this is also the dude that can grab you and plunge you into God's Holy Spirit. That's kind of curious. Like, not just any normal guy can do that, probably. Later on in John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples He's getting them ready for the fact that he's going to be crucified and die. And he says, but hey, take heart, man. I'm going to send a helper, an advocate. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. And then he says this little foreshadowing, right? He says, you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. It's like, whoa, the Holy Spirit's with us, like right now? What do you mean he's going to be in us? Like the Holy Spirit is God himself. And so Jesus is this guy who can plunge you into God himself. Jesus is this guy that has the authority to say, hey, guess what? You know him because he's with you. 
Hashtag, it's me. Because Paul says the Spirit is the Lord. <laughs> and he will be in you. They must have been totally confused, right? But what do we know? We know that in Acts, Luke records the fact that God's Holy Spirit shows up all of a sudden, catches everybody by surprise, and makes them act like maniacs. People think they're drunk. Well, they've just been filled with the presence of God himself. You'd act weird too. And in fact, if it's happened to you, you know I cried for like 45 minutes. It was very strange. <laughs> and if you haven't had that happen, you should talk to me. It's amazing. God literally filled up his people with himself. No joke. That's one of the reasons that God came. But being united with God also has another dimension. He wasn't just coming so that individually we could be full of the Holy Spirit, which is totally awesome, by the way. He was doing something else. When Jesus is praying, John 17, he's about to go to the cross. He has a long recorded prayer in the Gospel of John. I think the longest recorded prayer that we have from Jesus by far. And he's talking to his own father in the presence of the disciples. And he says a bunch of very interesting things. Here's one. John 17, 20 to 23. Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's praying for everyone who will believe in his name through all time. Who is that? That's us. So Jesus is praying specifically for us in this room, right here in this passage. He says, I pray that all of them may be one, unified, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's a pretty intense unity that he wants all of us to have, is it not? May they also be in us. Jesus is the guy that can plunge you into the presence of God himself. He's saying he wants to take this unified community in a giant, deified bear hug and plunge us all into the presence of God together. May they, may they also be in us. I have given them the glory that you gave me. What Justin prayed earlier about how if God did it for Jesus, he'd do it for you. Why? Because Jesus got all this glory from God and said, wow, this is a lot of glory. Hey, You'd like this too. Why don't you have some of this glory? And pass it out. So Jesus is glorifying us. He didn't just come to sacrifice himself. He came to do all this other cool stuff. And he says that they may be one as we are one. I in them, the Holy Spirit, and you in me. God the Father is in Jesus. Jesus is in us. We're all together. He's bear-hugging us, plunging, plunging us into the presence of God. This is crazy unity. So that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus shares his glory with us. God the Father, it says right here, this is not some weird apocryphal book, this is the Gospel of John. This says God loves you with the passion and intensity that he loved Jesus. Did you know that was in the Bible? You're his favorite too. And, and Jesus is like, man, if they could just do this, if they could just latch onto this, the whole world's going to know what's going on. Hmm. This is Jesus making a brand new covenant people. Yahweh has come back to earth. He came back for his people, but his people aren't just the Jews anymore. He has blown the doors way open. And Jesus is saying that by believing in him, anybody throughout all time, you can be united to the people of God, united to God himself. That's amazing. 
It's so amazing. It's also how Isaiah finishes up his, his little thing. I won't read the whole thing, but read the first half of Isaiah 56. It's all about how because the suffering servant has come, because he's taken our punishment, he's reestablished the covenant, we can all come to him, and the whole world is coming in too. Get ready and make room, because there are no boundaries on who can come into this party. And this, quite often... <laughs> what? Yeah. I feel like this, too often, is how we respond to this. This is hearing it so many times that you can't hear it anymore. This is what I'm afraid is going to happen and what I don't want to happen. Let me go back. Let me find this one more time. This is God's grace in the Gospel of John. I want to be amazed by this my whole life. If I'm ever not amazed by this, my heart has gone hard, or I haven't spent the time to, to sit with the Lord and let him talk to me. Maybe I've forgotten that Jesus just isn't my Lord and Savior. He also wants to be my friend. Maybe I've relegated my faith to a list of do's and don'ts, and I've forgotten that it's all about the simplicity of actually interacting with God. Maybe I've forgotten that God can actually encourage me. I need to be astounded by this my whole life. Mm. Yahweh came back to his people, and I'm one of his people, because he sacrificed himself so that I could escape condemnation, be alive, and be filled with his presence. And then he bear-hugged me in with the rest of his people, and he dumped me in himself. And we're all swimming in the presence of God. At least that's the way it should be. And if it was that way, the world would know this. Thank you, guys. Here's Justin.